thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. What's your sole purpose in this army? To do whatever you tell me, drill sergeant. Lieutenant, tell your men to get down. We're going to light up the sky. We got a black hawk down. We got a black hawk down. Broken arrow! You've heard Bomber Month. I'm We've had F-15 Month. I love the smell of napalm in the morning. Okay! Move out. Well, hold on to your berets because now it's Army Aviation Month. We have What kind of training, son? The first four Mondays in August will feature topics on fixed wing Army aircraft, Army flight school, various rotary wing aircraft, and the lethal AH 64 Apache gunship. Never mind the fluff. Let's get straight to it with your host, retired U.S. Navy fighter pilot Vincent Aiello. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Army Aviation Month here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast. I am your host, Jello, and here to kick off our first of four consecutive episodes for the guys and gals in green is Chief Warrant Officer 5, Aaron Nance of the Washington Army National Guard. How's it going, Aaron? It's going great, Jello. I'm really happy that you invited me on here, and I Hope I can shed a little light on Army aviation in general and maybe a little bit on Army fixed wing. Outstanding. Well, you have been very patient with me pestering you over the last couple of weeks, but you have a, a dubious position here. First off, you're on the Fighter Pilot Podcast. And as we know, you guys don't have any fighter planes, but also we have not yet done the Army justice. We've been in business here two and a half years on the show. And so you're going to kick it all off and we got a whole month dedicated to you guys. Perfect. Sounds good to me. All right. Excellent. Well, let's start with the usual. Where are you from? Where'd you go to school? Any military in your family? And what are you doing now? Absolutely. Well, I was born just outside of Nellis Air Force Base in 1971. My father was stationed there from 1969 until about 1973. And myself and my older sister were born there. My mother was a nurse at uh, Sunrise Hospital and (laughs) We lived there for a couple of years until my dad got off active duty, and we came back to North Carolina, where I was pretty much raised. All my childhood was spent in North Carolina until I entered the service and moved out of that area. Okay. And give us a highlight of your service. Well, I would like to say that I come from a service-oriented family. Both my grandfathers served in World War II. One was an infantry soldier with the 31st Division, the Dixie Division, that mostly fought in the Pacific campaign. He fought in most of the mopping up exercises and was uh, ultimately wounded in Mindanao, came back home and lived a long, happy life. My grandfather, Nance, my father's father, was he served on the USS Essex from the time it, it cruised out till the time it came home after the war. He was a F-6F plane captain. And what we call crew chiefs in the army, but that's right. He was a plane captain on that and served with them throughout the uh, task force 16th, throughout all of their engagements in the Pacific theater, which were numerous. Impressive. 
My father, um, you know, served also for 35 years in either the active duty Air Force or the Air National Guard. And my mother worked over 20 years in the VA system as a charge nurse and an administrator. So I'd like to start by saying that my entire family, uh, I come from a long line of civil service or military service, and it kind of pushed me along my track and my trail, I would say, in life. I would think so. Coming out of high school, the only thing I ever really thought about was flying. In some capacity, I wanted to fly in the military, whether it be the Air Force, the Navy, the Marines, or the Army. Coming out of high school, I I was a bit impatient, to say the least, and I wanted to get my feet wet in military aviation the quickest way I possibly could while I was going to college. And the Army National Guard really offered that opportunity to me. I jokingly say that there's two reasons why I chose the Army. And one was I was able to get involved in aviation while still going to college. But I was at a unit party at my father's unit, which was a C-130 unit. And I was introduced to a former fast mover pilot. And he said, so what are you going to do? And I said, well, there's only one thing I want to do, and that's fly the F-4 Phantom. And he looked at me and he laughed and he said, son, that thing will be long gone before you ever get out of college. And I said, well, that's it. I'm done with the Air Force because I can't believe they're <laughs> going to get rid of the best airplane that they ever had. The meanest, nastiest, dirtiest airplane out there. And mm-hmm. so I joke about that, but I think that the Army just appealed to me and it's low down in the trees. And as a kid seeing them flying around the house, it sparked my interest and it went from there. All right. Well, hold on. Quick time out to all you old people out there like me. Be careful what you say to young people because you can completely change the course of their lives. <laughs> Maybe for the better, though, Hiron. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, they did keep the Phantom around for a while, but not long enough for me to really enjoy it. Right. Yeah. So I, I think it worked out for the best for me. So give us some highlights of your Army career because obviously you're here to talk about aviation. So I got to think you made it into flying. Absolutely. I was fortunate enough, like I said, to go to college. And then in the early to mid 90s, there wasn't a lot of folks being sent to flight school within the National Guard system. You know, we were kind of getting that drawdown just a little bit. But, you know, just persistence and sticking with it, I was able to get picked up to go to flight school in 1997. I went to flight school. Previously to that, I was a helicopter crew chief mechanic on Hueys. Okay. Then uh, a little OJT on the Blackhawks when we started getting those, the the new Lima models. And I was uh, one of only a couple U8F crew chiefs, which was a Queen Air piston engine airplane, Mm. unpressurized little airplane for VIP transport. I didn't know what it was when they first said, hey, anybody want to go to school for this? I just raised up my hand because it sounded like a good idea, and it was a paycheck (laughs) at the time. So I jumped on it. Uh, I thought it was really a unique aircraft. I had a little of the old, obviously, because I think there were 65 models, 66 models. Oh, wow. But a neat aircraft, and that was really my first introduction to fixed wing. But obviously, back then, you did not go straight into fixed wing. That was something that was reserved more for the the elder of our kind in the warrant officer world, the W-4s. We didn't have W-5s back then, but shortly after that, W-5s. It was something that you got later on in your career once you've established yourself and were able to kind of get an attaboy. Okay, we're going to send you the fixed wing course. Mm -hmm. So I went to flight school, came back as an OH-58 helicopter pilot while I was waiting to go to the Apache course. 
ended up getting an Apache course in 1999, going to the qualification course for the Alpha model Apache, and flew at just a limited amount of time. But I was very fortunate that maybe it was some persistence, maybe it was just uh, the colonels were tired of listening to my request, but I was able to maintain currency in two aircraft at an early age in my aviation career. I was able to fly the 58 on a full-time basis and able to fly the Apache on a part-time basis. Cool. The Apache is a very unique aircraft, a very demanding aircraft. And at the time, we were realistically in a peacetime era. And it could be tough in an attack battalion in a peacetime era because we had limited flight hours, limited training capabilities. So a lot of my focus went back to the 58, and I really enjoyed it because of the mission that we had in the OH-58. Okay. I got an opportunity to get a full-time job flying 58s within the state and working with the Reconnaissance Air Interdiction Detachment. So basically, these were fenced funds that allowed us, because we were guardsmen, to help local and federal law enforcement in the war on drugs. So I took that job there in North Carolina, and it opened up other opportunities throughout the country and led to me moving on to Las Vegas, which was my next assignment, you could say. I was a young W-2, would fly anything that you could throw at me at the time, you know, just trying to gain experience. And I was given an opportunity and asked if I would be interested in helping to start a reconnaissance air interdiction unit in Las Vegas, Nevada. Now, I don't know, but I think I speak for most young pilots, single, if they say, well, we're going to give you a nice budget, all the flight hours you want, and we're going to pay you to work in Las Vegas. (laughs) It took me about 15 seconds to commit to that. And I packed everything that I had at the time and moved out to Las Vegas to start that part of my life. And it was an exceptional program, great people that we worked with, but 9-11 changed a lot of things in our country. And one of the things that I saw, it's not that counter drugs were not a priority in our country, but after 9-11, we had to kind of, I think the government kind of had to put its assets in other places. And I started to see a change in the support level for some of the things that we had been doing. And I thought, Aaron, you got a long time to go before you retire. So this is a congressionally funded program and this can go away tomorrow. So you better figure out what you're going to do next. And I thought, well, maybe fix wing. I'd heard about this program. Someone had reached out to me and said, hey, you know, traditionally army fix wing is for the long of tooth, the established army aviator. But the drawback to that was if they got that person in, in the late stages of their career, they tended to not stay more than about three or four years. Mm -hmm. And they would move on and retire and move out of the program. So the commander of the organization at the time thought, well, hey, maybe we'll try something. Maybe we'll hire a young CW2 that at least has standardization instructor pilot experience in the helicopter world, and we'll get them transitioned over and our payout will be extended through years. Mm-hmm. I was lucky enough to get picked up for that. I left Las Vegas with a heavy heart and moved up to 
Fort Lewis, Washington, that ended up being one of the most beautiful places in the country and working for the next 12, 13 years as a standardization officer in the uh, Fort Lewis Regional Flight Center. So we ultimately shut it down and consolidated all of our assets back to Fort Belvoir, Virginia, where I'm currently at, and took on the role of the uh, C-26 Metro Liner standardization officer and fly the UC-35, the Citation Jet, on the side to help out with the mission requirements there in the National Capital Region. Awesome. All right. Well, wow, that is quite the background. It sounds like you've flown just about everything. And that is precisely why I've been pursuing you so closely this last week is you're really the perfect guest for everything we have lined up for this year's Army Aviation Month because we've got a guest, uh, Nicholas Allen, coming up next for Flight School, which you've been through. And then our two aircraft series episodes for this month will be the OH-58 and the AH-64. So sounds like you've done it all. But really what I want to do with you today is talk about Army aviation in general, and then all those fixed wing assets. And I guess just right off the bat, you know, call me dumb, but I guess I wonder why the Army has aviation. And I get it. You know, the Navy has its own aviation. The Marine Corps has aviation. Of course, the Air Force used to belong to you guys and you spun off. But what is the role of fixed and rotary wing aviation in the Army in the first place? Well, the basic premise for all of us is a support element for the ground troops. Any Army aviator that you talk to should tell you adamantly that we're here to support those on the ground fighting the ground war. We're not the reason we're here. They are the reason we're here. And Army aviation, I think, has evolved through the years and through the multiple wars based on the senior leadership seeing the capabilities and the ability for Army aviation to expand or be a force. And, you know, I try not to get these big, crazy terms here, but a force multiplier for the combatant commander. So that individual on the ground mm-hmm. whose soldier's life is on the line, I mean, we give that person more options, more vision of the battlefield, and more time to maneuver to be effective or save their lives. And, and really, all the way from fixed wing down to the smallest helicopter, we can positively impact that commander's ability to do that. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, you guys, as I've read, are uh, there to find, fix, and destroy the enemy through fire and maneuver, provide combat and combat support, service support, etc. So I would say it's very much a tactical role, as you said, right? So for the guys and gals in the grass, you're there moving things in and out, uh, supporting them with fires, but you're not doing, obviously, strategic bombing or big you know, aerial maneuvers per se, unless it's moving people, but it's more localized. Is that a fair assessment? That's absolutely correct. And you're right. And that's one of the things that's so unique about Army aviation is we have that flexibility of operations that we can accept. And we did it routinely in Iraq and places that Mm -hmm. if that one box or that one individual is crucial to the success of the mission, well, then that's what's going to happen. We're going to load that box. We're going to load that individual and we're going to get them on the site so that they can successfully do what they need to do for the combatant commander. Right. Now, it wasn't always that way. I think Army aviation goes all the way back to the Civil War, I read, where both sides had helium or hydrogen balloons they were using for checking the other side. And then, of course, you guys had, what, the Army Air Corps initially, then the Army Air Forces through World War II, and then the Air Force split off in 1947. Today, it's Army aviation. But 
I think, wasn't there some food fighting between the Army and the Air Force all the way up through 1966? And then you had the Johnson-McConnell Agreement? That's exactly right. The Johnson-McConnell Agreement. It was kind of rehashing what they had supposedly already set out. You know, the 1947 with the National Security Act basically said, you know, Air Force, you're going to take the strategic bombing, you're going to take the heavy lift, the direct attack missions, the dedicated ground attack missions from the air. Army, you can keep your liaison platforms, you can keep some small transport aircraft, and you can still maintain a reconnaissance fleet. We continued to evolve that through the history, and obviously, we started to see that helicopter support was really the future for the Army and how we could easily access the battlefield, get the combatant commanders where they need to be, and quickly jump from position to position without having to construct large landing zones or uh, makeshift runways or anything like that. We still maintained an airplane fleet, but really, as time progressed, we started pushing towards the uh, helicopter world. But like you're saying, the Key West Agreement did come down and say, okay, Army, you can't have the armed platforms. You can't have the big transport aircraft. That's the Air Force's deal. But you're right. The Army, in development of the OV-1 Mohawk in Southeast Asia in the early 60s, they somehow, some way, armament ended up on that aircraft. <laughs> and I had the pleasure of actually knowing one of the individuals that got to fly some of the last missions with that. He used to come into our regional flight center and have coffee with us on a regular basis. And when he left Southeast Asia in, in I think it was late 65, early 66, they were dismantling the weapon systems. And they basically, the Air Force said, that's enough. You can't do this anymore. So the Army came back. They had the agreement that you spoke of earlier and said, hey, Army, you can do whatever you want with your helicopters. You're in charge of your helicopters. You can modify them there. You can develop them to suit your needs. But as far as airplanes are concerned, keep the bombs and the guns off. That's our job. So you're exactly right. No, it's interesting that it's almost like a sibling rivalry. And you would think maybe the solution is, well, what's the most effective overall? And perhaps it is that way to keep it divided, but it just seems a bit of a a food fight rather between brothers. But hey, if we uh, decide to do another Army Aviation Month someday, I'm going to ask you if you still have that guy's information, because that might be a good one to have here on the show. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So some of the common missions you might fly in either platform, fixed or rotary wing, you already touched on one, which would be the surveillance, so ISR, I might call it. What are some other ones? I'm thinking, obviously, medevac, some logistics. What else do you guys, what's like some buzz term missions you might perform? Well, I guess we'd have to break it down to, are we talking about rotorcraft or fixed wing aircraft? Sure. I mean, we can break it down. Let's go with rotary wing first. Well, obviously, we we had some scout reconnaissance platforms. Uh, the OH-58D, a beloved little aircraft, is no longer in our inventory. But I know a lot of that role is being taken over by the Apache community. But we did do some of that. Uh, where We did surveillance type stuff. We did intelligence gathering with that little platform in the helicopter world. Transport, obviously, the CH-47 from its long lineage from the Vietnam War, all the way up to the battlefields in Afghanistan. I mean, the the CH-47 has really stepped up and flawlessly executed as a troop transport and vital supplies at that. Mm -hmm. UH-60 obviously can't carry as much, but, you know, from a tactical standpoint, looking for a solid aircraft that can 
infill and exfill troops quickly and really resilient to battle damage. Uh, well, the UH-60 has obviously been the backbone of the United States Army aviation for quite mm-hmm. some time since the early 80s. We do have attack assets with the H-64. Now, when I flew Apaches, we had heavy attack and we did deep attack, but that was a little bit different scenario in the 90s where we were still training to fight tank columns coming across a line. So you, mm-hmm. you go out, you set up, and you destroy tanks. Things are a little bit different now, obviously. Yeah. The battlefield's a lot more dynamic and they've accepted other roles where they're going out and they're doing reconnaissance and other things. The platform itself has definitely changed uh, weapon systems, ability to communicate with ground troops and deploy other various systems is is leaps and bounds ahead of, of what it used to be. I think that they are trying to get more multi-role type aircraft configurations. I think that is a theme across all the branches. Mm-hmm. And I do believe that that's kind of what they're doing with the aircraft. Now, you may have one main role with the aircraft, but you do a lot of other tasks as far as transporting individuals, gathering information and things like that. Yeah. And obviously there's a lot of aircraft back through history. We don't have to cover, although you've already covered the Mohawk, but the UH-1 obviously (laughs) just, you know, made famous in Vietnam. And then I'm going to display my own ignorance here. I always thought of the AH-1 as a Marine aircraft. Is that something you guys uh, also employed? Yeah, the AH-1, so basically in Vietnam, the UH-1 came out initially as a troop transport aircraft, but the needs of the war dictated that they saw how maneuverable it was and how it could get on station, stay on station, and affect change to the battlefield. So they thought, well, hey, let's get some armament on these helicopters. So you went from a UH-1, basic slick is what they called it, to... Mm -hmm. B-model gunships and Charlie model gunships, and they were configured in different, whether it had grenade launchers, rockets, miniguns. Really, they were testing and evaluating a lot of these different configurations back in the day. The AH-1 came out later in the war as a dedicated attack-type platform. So the AH-1 Cobra was definitely, uh, in 1969, I think is when it first introduced, all the way through towards the end of the war, you would see them employed in Southeast Asia as hunter-killer teams. So you would have a small scout observation helicopter buzzing around down on the battlefield at pretty low levels and trying to pick a fight. (laughs) You get the enemy to shoot at you, you mark them, and then the snakes were up top and would roll in and obviously do what they do. Some of that carried on into the Apache 58 world, but the AH-1 was definitely up until after Desert Storm was still used readily throughout the United States Army. And then obviously the evolution, it being an older aircraft, was phased out and the Apache and its different variations has taken over that role. Yeah. Well, we hope to have an episode on the AH-1 at some point and we can cover what it's still doing in the Marine Corps. I think they call it the AH-1 Zulu or Zebra, you know, but Z. And then I think they call it the Viper now. But anyway, we'll have a whole show on that. All right. So getting back to the different missions, let's move to the fixed wing. And this is where I'd like to spend kind of the bulk of the time, because again, when I think of fixed wing for the Army, I either think of Air Force doing it or you know, something close to the battlefield. But you said earlier, you guys are obviously doing VIP transport and then you got a bunch of stuff with a bunch of weird lumps and bumps. And I know we can't talk too much about it, but what have you got for fixed wing and and what do they do? 
obviously the fixed wing lineage goes way back all the way to World War One and, and evolved up through. We've always kept at least liaison capable aircraft for Korea and Vietnam, but we started to use them more and more for electronic warfare in the Vietnam era. We uh, continued to develop those through the years for the intel side of the military intelligence gathering side of the house. And there's been multiple, multiple iterations of those airplanes. The transport piece, yes, no heavy, heavy transport, obviously, because that's the Air Force's mission. But we are capable of moving limited amounts of cargo with key personnel, The last true cargo, I would say, aircraft for us was the C-23 Sherpa, which we phased out around 2014. The King Air C-12, it's probably one of the most versatile platforms ever designed. I mean, the thing can work in an ISR world. It can work in a VIP world. And even if push comes to shove, you can put some litters in it and get wounded personnel out of areas. Hmm. The C-26 is what I'm a standards chief on. It's a little bit bigger version of a turboprop. Max configuration for that typically is around 14 people, but obviously with aircraft, it's dependent on density, altitude, weights, you know, the mission load, stuff like that is how many people we can carry on it. It's a tough aircraft to say the least. It's a little bit of old school mixed with a little bit of new. (laughs) It's got a big old yoke like a school bus. I love it. (laughs) But it can take a beating and it does things really well and it does it efficiently. For the non-executive side, we move up into the, obviously the King Air still does some of that, but the UC-35 jet, which is the Citation 560 or Citation Ultra. A good little jet, uh, straight wing jet, not exceptionally fast, but very forgiving and very maneuverable and very capable for shorter runways and the places that we go in and out of. It's a good airplane. It does exactly what it's supposed to do, provides a a comfortable place in the back for key leaders to still be able to work and function while we're getting them to the places that they need to be in Mm -hmm. as expedited fashion as we can. We do have other airplanes that do the executive travel. Uh, Those are Gulfstream variants, but they're very limited as to their role and and what they do. obviously very uh, selective on who gets to ride in those aircraft. Sure. Yeah. And now you're talking folks walking around the Pentagon probably. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So as far as the tactical aircraft, other than your VIP transport, are they fulfilling roles from the air tasking order by the combatant commander or do they belong maybe to the local army guy because they're necessarily supporting those folks on the ground again? Yeah, absolutely. They're tasked by the combatant commander. They're assigned underneath to support. And it's just exactly like you say. I mean, you come out on the ATO, you're you're out there working elbow to elbow with Navy, Air Force assets, and multiple other assets that are out there. And you're working in the battle space just like they are. And really, again, I hate to go back to the buzzwords, but you're there as a force multiplier mm-hmm. to give that combatant commander, either intelligence or ISR capabilities. And really, these days, the combatant commander has multi-levels or tiers to call on while they're out there engaged. And we're part of it. We're right there in the fray with the rest of the... uh, So you're providing information to the larger team, not just to the Army folks there? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. At any given time, we can be out supporting Marines on the ground. Yeah, cool. All right. 
we'll talk about flight school on the next episode, but as far as basing, and we don't have to talk numbers, but are most of these on the, uh, let's say, the sides of the United States? Are you guys in the heartland? I mean, where do people end up if they're flying fixed wing? Is there a central location generally? No, we don't really have a hubbing system or anything like that. It's been talked about, but there is fixed wing assets all over the country and all over the world. We have fixed wing assets. So every major command really has some type of fixed wing support, whether that's in the Intel side of the house or whether that's in the transport side of the house. Uh, So we're pretty much spread out throughout the world and definitely throughout the country. And as far as deployment locations, is is it wherever you're needed? Wherever the U.S. military is at, Army Fixed Wing is there. <laughs> <laughs> you guys don't command a lot of attention. I don't know if that's intentional or not, but... We like it that way. Yeah, I bet you do. I bet you do. I'm just not very aware. I'm, I always enjoy learning so much on this show myself, and I hope the listeners do too. But okay, so you go wherever the hot spots are. You guys are there. Are there any forward deployed in different places? I mean, I know we still have a lot of forces in Japan and Germany and the UK and various places. Do we keep any fixed wing army aircraft overseas? So again, I would say uh, without specifics that Anywhere there's a major presence for the United States Army, there's going to be some type of fixed-wing presence there, either just to support them internally to get them around where they need to be or to provide them the products that they need. But there are fixed-wing assets usually assigned to any major command out there, I should say, in support of any major command out there. Okay. And I think Nicholas is going to tell us on this next episode about the flight school, how you guys, I think, jump straight into rotary wing for the Navy and the Marine Corps. We always start in a small prop plane first, but you had alluded to this before. What's the training like? Let's just talk for the fixed wing guys. Is that something, there's nobody brand new going straight to fixed wing. Is that what you're saying? Well, that used to be the case, but that's not the case anymore. Okay. And he'll talk a little bit more about the transition of army flight school training to flight school 21 and the advanced aircraft transitions. But what we do see now, though, is individuals, whether they come into the service prior fixed wing folks, so they could have been a commercial airplane pilot, a CFI. It's not uncommon nowadays for them to go through what they call IERW, initial entry rotor wing training, get qualified in a helicopter And then as soon as they're done with that, they go straight to the fixed wing course. They've seen, you know, a need to get that younger force in there to sustain the program. So they're bringing them in. What used to be a little bit of an attaboy, hey, we're going to give you the fixed wing course or being at the right place at the right time or knowing the right individual. That's right. Having all top blocks on your evaluation report would get you into the fixed wing community nowadays. You may get that right out of flight school. You may get an assignment flying, you know, military intelligence airplanes or VIP. It doesn't matter, whatever the needs of the Army are at the time. And then let's talk a little bit about the Army versus the Army National Guard, because being a Navy guy, I don't think we have quite the equivalent. We do have reserves, but the Army National Guard, so you belong to them, but you're, as you were saying before we started recording, Title 10. So you can, what, go back and forth between state and federal effectively? You can. Uh, Once you're accepted in the Title X program, you fall under the Title X rules and regulations. I'm just like active duty. So 
it's very easy for them to take me and mobilize me and send me to wherever it needs to go, Afghanistan, uh, Iraq, whatever. Whereas a traditional guardsman, a Title 32 guardsman, which belongs to the state, they have to federal, you know, bring them on federal orders, mm-hmm. mobilization orders, bring them into the process and then mobilize them, send them, which we do, which obviously the last 15 to 20 years has happened quite a bit. But it's a Title Ten, so basically we work hand in hand with active duty folks. Mm-hmm. We run the day to day operations just the same as the active duty to be the administrative force. My organization, OSA, we basically manage the National Guard fixed wing fleet. So it's a really a full time job. So we are on full-time orders and and we do it just exactly the same as an active duty soldier would. And our office is actually a blended office or a blended organization. So we have Mm. active army individuals there working side by side with us. And if you didn't know, or, or you weren't part of the organization, you probably wouldn't know the difference. You would come in, we all wear the same uniforms. We all do the same things. It's just one of us happens to be a National Guardsman on active duty orders versus someone who is in the active component. Gotcha. If you've always dreamt of a career in aviation while keeping your feet on the ground, then Air Corps Aviation is the place for you. Since 2008, Air Corps Aviation has been at the forefront of modernizing the airworthiness of legacy aircraft dating back to World War II. Their dedicated team specializes in numerous aerospace disciplines, including manufacturing, fabrication, restoration, and support, all while incorporating state-of-the-art technology. In 2024, Air Corps Aviation is expanding its team with job openings in engineering and computer-aided design, quality, fabrication, and restoration. Live where others vacation in northern Minnesota while enjoying paid time off, health insurance and savings accounts, retirement plans, life insurance, and best of all, most Fridays off. If you're ready to be a part of a team fulfilling dreams through the preservation of historical aircraft, visit aircoreaviation.com careers and take your first step towards an exciting career in aviation. That's aircoreaviation.com careers. Visit today. Aaron, so I have not hidden my ignorance of Army aviation and I've learned a lot. What would you say is the biggest misconception about Army aviation in general? What do people just not understand or or assume incorrectly, perhaps? I think the biggest thing is the fixed wing thing. If we looked back 20 years or something, they wouldn't really understand maybe warrant officers and the relationship that we have or the relationship the Army has with the warrant officer. But I think Today, really, it's not uncommon for me to land somewhere or or go somewhere. And even individuals in the Army go, you're in the Army? Yeah, I, I'm in the Army. <laughs> and you fly a jet? Yeah, I sure do. That's what we do. Wow, I had no idea. You know, I thought you guys just flew helicopters. Well, we do fly helicopters, but we also fly airplanes. And I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions is they still can't get their head wrapped around the fact that the Army has a lot of airplanes. We employ them in a lot of different ways. (laughs) No, I I get it because... If you look at helicopters, I mean, that's the one thing that everybody has, even the Air Force, even though they supposedly relinquished that role to you, but they keep it for CSAR and various things. Absolutely. Yeah, I guess you just wouldn't think maybe there's a giant need for that, but I certainly understand it better. 
Well, speaking of warrant officers, I have some listener questions I want to pose to you. And the first one is about warrant officers, but let's, before I ask it, just explain for me the difference between an officer and a warrant officer. So for example, when I finished high school and you and I are only a year apart, I went to college for four years and then was commissioned by Congress, theoretically, and into the military as an O-1 or an ensign. Now, when you went out, did you basically straight away enlist into the Army, Army National Guard in this case? I did, and there was two reasons for that. Obviously, the Montgomery GI Bill was a big factor that I knew would help me pay for college as I was going through. It got me introduced, Mm -hmm. and to me, I, I was really motivated about just getting in a seat. I didn't care really what branch per se. I just wanted to be in the pilot seat. So to me, I could get involved with the helicopter. I felt I had a better chance of getting to a flight school in the 90s that way because I wasn't going to a service academy. Mm -hmm. And I knew that I could possibly go to flight school before even finishing the degree and then come back and finish my degree, which is what ended up happening for me. That's the interesting thing about it is... I don't know the exact details, but realistically, I think the Army adopted and kept the warrant officer program, especially for aviation. There was an overwhelming need of bodies during the Vietnam War. I mean, we had a lot of helicopters. We were putting more helicopters on the line. They needed lots and lots of pilots. Pilots needed to be officers. So let's get the warrant officer world. They have the rank and the privileges of the officer, the responsibility. However, they don't have to assume in a command. They can just specialize and stay in their career field and not get that interrupted by you know, a command assignment or an administrative assignment. Mm-hmm. So the Army adopted that, plus the sheer numbers that they needed to fill all the requirements during the Vietnam War and after that. It had to be done by the warrant officer because... Congress still mandates the number of commissioned officers you can have within your organization. So even though a W-2 through a W-5 is a commissioned officer and they're commissioned by the president of the United States, we don't fall under those restrictions that are put on the units that you can only have so many captains, so many majors, so many lieutenant colonels. Those are control grades that there's only so many. They can't fill up the ranks with them. So I think that's why it worked so well for the United States Army. And it allowed those individuals to become the technical and tactical experts in their career field, whether that is artillery, motor pool, air defense, artillery, or something like that, those warrant officers become the continuity piece and they become the glue for the organization, really, because they don't move around as much. But if they do, they're going to a similar type assignment, not a do or different assignment. Gotcha. So that's the warrant officer in a very abbreviated okay. <laughs> version of it. Well, when you said the president, it reminded me I was wrong when I said the Congress, because I can think of, I don't know where it is, but I do have a commissioning document somewhere that was signed by George H.W. Bush. So uh, I misspoke on that one. But okay, so regarding these questions, the first one is from Matthew Edwards, and he wants to know what percentage of Army aviators are warrant officers? So uh, you talked about in Vietnam, it was probably a lot higher. But just to his question today, if you were a warrant officer and you'd been in the Army for a few years and I was a brand new, let's say, West Point graduate, could I be in flight school as a second lieutenant right next to you? Absolutely. Prior to, I say, I think 91 or 92, warrant officers went through flight school as walks, warrant officer candidates. So 
your life really sucked for a year. I mean, you <laughs> were in, it's like being in OT, I don't know what you call it in the Navy, OTS. OCS for us, yeah. OCS, you're in the OCS the entire time you're in flight school. Oof. So warrant officer candidate school, you were in that status the entire. Now, yes, you got more privileges as you went on. In 1992, they kind of did a holistic look at it and they thought, well, that's kind of not fair to those who don't track aviation. Say they're a supply warrant or they're a air defense artillery warrant. Okay. They graduate from the basic side and their advanced training might be 10 weeks, not a year long. So they pin a whole lot earlier W-1, so therefore they're eligible for W-2 a whole lot earlier and don't on down the road. So mm-hmm. about 92, 93 timeframe, the Army changed it where everyone that went into the warrant officer program graduated from warrant officer candidate school, you pinned your W-1. You were appointed as a W-1. Everyone went off to their branch training, whether it was SF or whatever it happened to be, and the aviators I mean, I graduated on at 11 a.m. one morning, and I went and picked up my books at 1300. So at 1 p.m., I was picking up my books for flight school. Mm-hmm. We were moving right along, and I was a W-1. So it was much better for me. I went and found an apartment to live in versus living in the barracks and having locker room inspections and all that kind of thing. Oh, yeah. So, but yes, absolutely. My class was very heavy in lieutenants because of when I started, depending on the time when you start. That graduating class from the academy or from ROTC had gone through their final stuff during the summer, and now they were ready to start flight school. So I went through at a time when the classes were extremely small and very hard to get into. We probably had 15 lieutenants and maybe 10 warrants. And as far as warrants are concerned, the individuals who started flight school one day and didn't have any bubbles or any delays or setbacks that actually graduated. I think there was five of us, five warrants that graduated with my class. Our class photo is kind of hilarious to say (laughs) the least. So I don't know if that answers the question there, but. uh, Well, so let me just ask it this way. If you look at the pool of army aviators today, what would you say is the percentage of four-year graduates, and, and not to say that there aren't warrants with degrees, but how many are warrants and how many are you know straight ROTC or academy guys? I don't know the exact numbers for the ratio now. Eh, even anecdotally. If you're starting a class in the summer months or in the months when the lieutenants would still be in ROTC or at the academy, then you are going to have a class that's much heavier in the warrant officer side because they start classes like every couple of weeks or every month. So, okay. But if you're starting there on certain times of the years, you might see an influx of lieutenants. So you may see 50% of the class being lieutenants versus warrants. But in other times of the year, you may see a, a heavy load of warrants. Now, my understanding is, and the guy that's going to talk about flight schools can probably attest this a little better than me, but during the surge and the buildup during Iraq and what the numbers got back up to what they used to be kind of towards the Vietnam era, where they were pushing 60, 70 people through flight school every class, which would be every two weeks wow. versus when I was going through, the classes were very small. It was kind of during the drawdown of the 90s, and we just didn't see that many people going through the class. It kind of goes up and down the ratio, I would say. Sure. But typically, the Army as a whole, 
I don't have specific numbers, but 75, probably maybe even as close as 80% of the aviators that are out in the field units are warrant officers Oh wow! that fly the aircraft. And then obviously you need your command staff, which will be your second lieutenants, your lieutenants all the way up. So Jim Gundog has a follow-on question to that. He says, being an army aviator, who has a lot more fun, an officer or a warrant officer and why? <laughs> well... <laughs> Obviously, with a warrant officer, uh, you can't really talk about your fun times, not for this program. But the warrant officers, (laughs) they're given a little bit of leeway sometimes because we can get really, really laser focused on our job and our mission. Well, I say we don't have to always, but I've actually had command time as a warrant officer. It's not uncommon nowadays as a warrant officer to have a command. It's crazy as that, that may sound. They realize that we're a good fix sometimes when they don't have someone to put in there for short term. But warrant officers, yeah, they kind of have a bit of a, a reputation of have fun, party hard, but they also work hard and they're very focused on their trade craft. It's funny because that carries over even to the other branches. You talk to someone that hears that you're a W-5, they all kind of look at you and go, oh, the unicorns the W-5s, the grumpy old guys that you just don't mess with. And that's not really the truth, but we'll take it. But, uh, you know, it's just, they're not going to really put up with a whole lot. The standard is the standard with the warrant officers, especially in the standardization world. Mm -hmm. They're known to be opinionated, to say the least. And they probably are that way in the Navy, I would suggest, because they typically are the technical experts in their career field. And we're entrusted. You know, it's amazing that the warrant officer is present in every echelon of the United States Army, from the W-1 that's in a squadron or a platoon, all the way up to the chief of staff of the Army. The chief of staff of the Army has a warrant officer that consults them on the day-to-day operations of the field and the warrant officer out there. So that's the unique thing about them. I think that we are given a little bit of latitude because sometimes we tend to speak our mind, respectfully speak our mind. You always put the sir or the ma'am in front of of it or afterwards, but we tend to speak our mind (laughs) and let them know exactly what they're doing, whether it's right or wrong, the best way that we can. (laughs) And I think we're well-respected within the community, definitely within the army and, and, I'm glad I chose that route, to be honest with you. I was given an opportunity to do the commission thing, but I think you need to know where you want to be 20 years down the road. And I knew 20 years down the road, I still wanted to be in the seat. Sure, I wanted to be directly impacting the folks on the ground, whether it's local, whether it's picking up the flood victims, whether it's supporting the troops in contact. I knew that 20 years down the road, I did not want to be sitting in a battalion headquarters or a talk. That's an incredible task. But I knew for me, my job was to be in the cockpit. I chose warrant officer because of that. We're, we're allowed to stay in that role and perfect that role within ourselves. Yeah. Well, frankly, I think the Navy and the Air Force should do that with fighter pilots, but I think they'd have a lack of anyone doing other than that because everyone would just want to stay and do what you're talking about. Is it relatively common for warrant officers to convert to regular officers? I've seen quite a bit of it in the last 10 or so years. Some of the programs change the way they organize things. Uh, And again, we'll get into a lot of terminology, but the units became... MTO units are more tactical oriented units. 
And when they did that, what used to be a small detachment that was commanded by a senior warrant officer, there was a requirement now for lieutenants. And that's how I almost transferred over was, you know, as an operations officer in a small specialized unit. And they said, hey, you know, we're going to have to have a lieutenant now. You know, you got a college degree, you've been to every one of the courses, you've been kind of been running the show a little bit here. Uh, how about you just go to OCS? And I was like, well, I've already been through officer candidate school. I'm not going through that again. Well, how about a direct commission? Okay. And then to be honest with you, I got offered the fixed wing gig and I thought there is no way I'm turning down an opportunity to go fly fixed wing to take a commission of ultimately I knew by the time I made O3 and captain, I was going to probably end up sitting at a desk instead of being in the aircraft, or there was a good chance of that. And I had to make that decision. Mm -hmm. You know, I made that decision and uh, I'm kind of happy I did. It's worked out great for me. Awesome. Anthony Lombardo asks, should Army have kept the CAS or close air support role? This is a deep one, frankly. Oh, it's a sensitive one too. (laughs) Yeah. I don't have a ton of time in the Apache. Uh, I was not in the Apache during a wartime So I didn't get to deploy with that aircraft. I I deployed with other assets. But I don't know of any self-respecting Apache person or 58D person that would not instantly jump at the chance to perform the CAS mission for our soldiers on the ground. Mm -hmm. I know from working with and talking to a lot of the individuals who have been on both ends of the spectrum, I had a conversation, many conversations when you're up flying missions for hours and hours about the way they wish things were when they were a ranger or when they were a special forces guy on the ground and very appreciative of the close air support that they got in country. Absolutely. But unfortunately, they felt that sometimes there were constraints put on the other services and it would sometimes be to the point where, hey, we really need you to do this. I know you don't want to drop it this close. I know you don't want to do this. It's outside the comfort level of the command, but we need you now. And a lot of them have felt just their personal opinions that if that was organic to the army, it might be a little bit easier to get that support. Although, mm-hmm. you know, I do know individuals that are alive today because of the fast movers that were able to come in and lay down close air support and did rotation after rotation, swapping out aircraft and kept them alive in bad situations. So I do believe that we would love to have that mission. I just don't know, like we talked about earlier, I feel that most of the branches in the Army really focus on the future aircraft being a multi-role aircraft. I don't know that a true cast aircraft that needs to be extremely robust it needs to be able to get in quick, carry a lot of ordnance, mm-hmm. and sustain, or loiter time needs to be high, sustain a lot of damage, and then fly back home. That's a specialized aircraft. Yeah. And I don't know that anyone's going to put the time and the money forward to develop that. I would like to see it in the United States Army, but I don't know if it fits in with the modernization and the need to evolve our current aircraft and mission with the helicopters and future vertical lift, that's going to play a part in our future. So how do you 
now establish a new mission within the organization in these times. I don't think it's going to happen. If you gave me an old A-10 and said, uh, go to work, I think we would do it in about two seconds. (laughs) Well, so that's where I was going to go next is because, you know, the Johnson-McConnell agreement, be darned, if you could roll the clock back 40 years and take the A-10, which frankly, the Air Force never liked anyway, wouldn't there be some value in making that an Army airplane? Absolutely. We'd make it work. The Army's very good at taking what we have and making it work for our mission set. We've done that time and time again. I think we would absolutely do it. There was talk of that. I don't know how legitimate that talk was, but back really before Desert Storm and not too long after it, I think that they were looking at that possibility is, you know, some of these folks that have been flying the H-64, they really know the mission. It's just learning the aircraft. Obviously, there's some differences Mm -hmm. in the aerodynamics and the flying portion of it, but that can be learned. But the instincts and the ability to communicate with the ground is the same. And that's really the key to close air support is that communication piece. I think we've come a long way. I don't know how much of that you got to do, but these young kids that are on the ground, the stress and and their ability to focus and get you on target is truly phenomenal to me at their age. Excellent. Okay. Joseph Grisella asks, are all medevac functions carried out by Medical Service Corps branch aviators, or do all aviators in the aviation branch carry out this function? That's a good question. So uh, the Medical Service Corps is one of the unique things within Army aviation. All of the O grades, when they graduate from flight school, they still have to go through Medical Service Corps officer basic course. And they fall under the Medical Service Corps. The warrant officers, you come out, you get qualified in an aircraft. You could get assigned to a medevac unit and you fall under their rules and regulations, the whole Geneva Convention thing uh, for having a marked medevac aircraft. However, they're not medical service corps officers. The O grades are the second lieutenants, the first lieutenants, the captains. They're actual medical service corps officers that are rated aviators. So, yes, and they are responsible for all the direct medevac missions. The other platforms do a version of that. Most major operations, they have provisions or the ability to do a CASVAC or a CASEVAC or casualty evacuation. Mm -hmm. And that just makes perfect sense. Hey, if things go south, we're going to designate so-and-so you're going to become a casualty evacuation. Yeah, you're still in a combat helicopter, but your role has now instantly changed to get in and get those wounded out because you're right there on the scene. But there's a lot of rules and regulations. You know, obviously those aircraft that are still combat aircraft cannot have the Red Cross on it and they fall under a different Geneva Convention and all of that stuff. But we can do evacs in the regular helicopters. But all of the dedicated medevac functions are still controlled by the Medical Service Corps. Hmm. I want to go off script with you a little bit here, Aaron, because as I see combat over the last 10, 20 years, it has really changed from what you might arguably call gentlemanly fighting in the past, where frankly, the Medical Service Corps were not supposed to be attacked. These days, you have groups that'll do anything to anybody. In fact, sometimes they'll even target 
those folks specifically. Uh, do you see this as being a going concern, if I may borrow a term from the business world? I mean, is this something the Army still expects to have some decorum and, and they're not just highlighting those particular aircraft? Because they're not armed, right? That's a correct statement. They aren't, and they're not allowed to be. You know, most of the Western states, uh, they all adhere to the Geneva Convention. Uh, I'm not going to about to sit here and say that some of the groups or the individuals that we've been in uh, combat with even adhere to that. An opportunity is an opportunity for them, and it does. But I can tell you that the Army leadership, we adamantly adhere to it, and we're going to stick to that until that and obviously changes. Um, and I don't see that change anytime mm-hmm. soon because that's the law of the land and, and we're going to stick to it. So uh, those individuals, I'll tell you, uh, especially the ones, you know, in the early days in Vietnam and the ones even out there today in Iraq and Afghanistan, unaware, unafraid, but willing to do whatever it takes to get our people out of harm's way. They assume that risk and, and they knowingly assume that risk to go in and complete that mission because it's that important. No doubt about it. Aaron, in my world, we have books like uh, John Boyd, who came up with the energy maneuverability. He was an Air Force fighter pilot. Then you've got Robin Olds. You've got fiction by various folks like Stephen Kuntz on Carrier and even uh, my friend Kevin Miller with his Raven One books. Are there some books that if the listener like me is not very aware of kind of define Army aviation, whether it's the rotary wing or has anyone written anything on the fixed wing? Sounds like a lot of folks haven't read it, if so. I don't know of a lot on the fixed wing side. There's obviously some very good articles about the early days of the intelligence world in Southeast Asia and all of the things that they were doing across border operations that have been declassified and they're out there now. It's really amazing to me some of the things that these aviators were doing at night in these sparsely equipped airplanes. It just amazes me with all of the glass cockpits and everything that we have in modern technology, the things that they used to do. From the rotor wing side of the house, absolutely. I mean, there's some books out of the SOCOM world that really give you a glimpse into the day-to-day responsibilities of those aviators and crew members. As a kid growing up, I navigated or kind of tracked towards the Vietnam era. It was absolutely intriguing to me, and I I couldn't get enough of it. So I read a lot of books, and you know, I hate to put shameless plugs in, but like Chicken Hawk and uh, Low Level Hell. I mean, they spoke to me to say the least, the dedication and the willingness of these individuals mm-hmm. and aircraft that were not armored aircraft. <laughs> They're in uh, sheet metal and tubing and they are <laughs> coming back with tree limbs in their skids. And honestly, I think it talks about even though that you're in the cockpit of an aircraft in the army, you're you're still at the basic sense a, a ground warrior and, and you feel connected to the individual that's sitting on the ground and they're relying on you to either provide insertion or extraction or medevac services or close our version of close air support, which is basically, you know, gunships overhead trying to keep the enemy's head down so that they can maneuver as they need to. So those, a lot of those books from that era, there's some really good books out uh, now talking about the initial attack into Iraq and the early days of Afghanistan and what those individuals did in the mountains of Afghanistan, because that was kind of a new thing. Well, not a new thing, but an extreme environment 
for Army aviation, the learning curve that was involved in and fighting in those environments and how they quickly adapted uh, to be successful in those environments. I can't name off the books per name, but there's lots out there they can do research and find out from individuals that have wrote these, or at least get a small glimpse into what they saw in the early days of those wars. Well, we'll uh, see if we can track some down. We can always link to them. But um, yeah, I, I still enjoy reading and I haven't read Chicken Hawk in a long time. And I think I have it here in my collection somewhere, but it tells of some pretty amazing stories and it's all, of course, firsthand. And so it just, at least for me, it just makes me so proud, like you said earlier, that there are men and women who are out there doing this day in and day out. So, Well, Jello, I will say this from a standardization, I, I wouldn't be a W5 in the standards if I didn't say this. If you've got enough time to read, you better be reading your operator's manual for your aircraft, and uh, <laughs> you better be re- you better be reading your ATM on how to fly your aircraft. That's what we would say to them. <laughs> well, on that note, transitioning to the end here, don't you have to read two of those? Are you double dipping, uh, doing other things besides just Army aviation? That's correct. I maintain proficiency in two aircraft. Uh, one I manage, and the other one I just help out the unit by trying to be a competent left or right seater in their forum for missions so that they have enough folks to cover the mission request. The other one, I enjoy it because I have such a great group of individuals within the C-26 community, uh, hardworking. I call them a dirty boot group, dirty boot airplane, because they are, they're hardworking. They're just one just a couple of years up from a DC-3 pilot. I mean, that's the way I see them. They're willing to get out there and do what it takes. And I love working with them. They don't turn down much. They're eager to get out there and do what needs to be done. And they're stuck down at the low levels. They're not like us jet pilots that get up top and get above the weather. You know, they're stuck down there at 19, 18,000 feet, battling the old clouds and, and the ice and the weather and still getting it done every single day. So... I do have to read a lot uh, of manuals because I'm supposed to be the expert to help them out. But really, I I see our job is we clarify things sometimes for them in the field, but my job is to help them be successful. So if I need to change something in how we do business or something needs to be addressed fleet-wide, then that's my job is to make sure that they have everything that they need so they can successfully complete their mission. How much longer are you going to keep doing that? What's the future hold? I don't know. I uh, I hit 31 years in January. Wow. It's been my whole life. I was planning on getting out, but obviously some things in this uh, world have changed a little bit in the last six months. <laughs> you know, most of the folks that come out of our office go straight to the 121 carriers. I think the majority go to American, uh, great companies that we have here. Southwest Airlines, Alaska, all of them, but times have changed just a little bit. So let's say that retention is not a problem right now, I don't think. And uh, I'm still enjoying what I'm doing. I still enjoy climbing into the cockpit. I still enjoy uh, working and trying to teach the best I can to the community. And I'll stay in as long as that's what's happening. I think I'm getting close. I'm definitely getting close to wanting to transition out and find something else to do. And I think everyone just, I think they finally hit their point. I'm really close to that right now. But uh, once I hit that point, then, hey, you know, I'll put in my date and I'll feel like I tried to give as much as I possibly could, move out and let somebody else have one of those W5 slots. 
Well, geez, I mean, 31 years, I don't think anyone can accuse you of not having done your part. Thank you very much. How long can you stay? What's the upper limit? I thought it was 30, what is it, 40 years? Well, as a warrant officer, I can go up to 62. I can't see that happening. I came in and enlisted at 18. So I think that would be a bit too much, but you could do it. (laughs) I've seen folks do it. I've seen people put over 40 years in. I'm not going to say it won't happen, but I'm feeling pretty confident that that's not going to happen for me. I I think I'm ready to transition within the next year, uh, hand the reins uh, for at least my limited responsibility over to someone else and try something new. No doubt. Well, again, I don't think anyone can accuse you of not doing your part. All right. So here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast, Aaron, we always end with a question on how somebody got their call sign. But I think you told me before we rolled tape that you guys don't really play those silly reindeer games, huh? No, we call each other names, but they're not call signs, uh, especially in the warrant officer world. So uh, we never really adopted that. Okay. And any uh, favorite names you hear? What does your wife call you? Okay, don't answer that. <laughs> you um, don't know that. <laughs> Awesome. All right. Well, we'll, for the next couple episodes, we'll have to end on a different note then. But Aaron, this has been a lot of fun. I learned so much and I know there's a lot more, but obviously we have to delicately tread around some of this stuff. And I think you did a good job of that. So thanks so much for your time today. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for thinking about Army Aviation. (laughs) Well, you guys get a whole month. So yeah, you're welcome. All right, man. Well, you take care and uh, we'll hopefully keep in touch. All right. Take care. Be safe. You've been listening to Army Aviation Month here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast. For more information on the show, visit our website at fighterpilotpodcast.com, where you can also find a catalog of other show topics, as well as military aviation-themed merchandise, such as books and apparel. For exclusive content and to help support the show, be sure to check out our Patreon page. This episode was brought to you by BVR Productions and produced by our friends at the Muscle Car Place Podcast Network. Thanks for listening. Sir, yes, sir! Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.